If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to 2 Peter. Uh, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. And um, man, let me just give you a little bit of uh, a context of where we're at as we're picking up uh, in the letter uh, that Peter wrote uh, to the early church. Uh, he began uh, with some, it's like a good news, bad news kind of thing, right? And so he began with the good news of saying like, hey, actually great news uh, Jesus loves you. He gave his life for you. And because he, he died on the cross for your sins, he has given you this incredible gift, not only of salvation and forgiveness, but he has given you everything you need for life and for godliness and just to live this life of incredible purpose and hope and joy. And, uh, and you have everything you need. And so he encourages us, therefore, make every effort to live in the way that God is calling you to live. Make, uh, you've been given this great gift Open it up and use it. Like, use the things that God has given you. And so, in doing that, you can know with certainty that you have received salvation and that you are walking with the Lord and you can experience the, the nearness of him. And so, so, he's like encouraging them, do these things. But then in chapter 2, he says, hey, but, but beware, false prophets are going to come among you and they're going to try and lead some astray if they can. And so for the past four weeks, we've been looking at the beginning of chapter two, uh, where it talks about, it connects it to these Old Testament examples. And we've done some deep dives into these Old Testament stories that bring to light the truth that Paul is showing, or Peter is showing us. I'm looking at Paul and talking about Peter, right? That, that Peter is teaching to us, right? And so the first week we looked at like the angels who fell from heaven. And then we looked at the time of Noah and the flood and the wicked world, but how Noah was saved through it. And then we looked at, at Lot in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then last week we looked at Balaam and the donkey. And all these stories were, were shown to illustrate that God ultimately knows how to judge the wicked and how to save the righteous. And that he will do that. He has done that. And he will continue to do that. And it's a, and it's a word that was needed because it can be discouraging in the church when you look at those who are, who are teaching falsely, uh, who are going against what Jesus was all about, and they seem to be succeeding. It seems like the enemy is winning the day. And, and Peter is essentially saying, hey, don't be discouraged. God's not surprised by this. This has happened historically. It will continue to happen. But God is sovereign and he is greater than all these things. And so now we, uh, that was verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. We're now picking up in verse 17, where he kind of concludes his thoughts around the false prophets, and, and he talks about something that's slightly different. And so the beginning was a warning of like, hey, stay away from these false prophets, but the sad truth is that there are going to be some who fall for their teachings, and there are going to be some who fall away uh, from the church, that, that, that stop fellowshipping with you, that cease to be a part uh, of those who worship Jesus. And, and uh, for you out there, there may be somebody in your life who immediately comes to mind, somebody who you love and, and care about, who at one time would have professed to be a follower of Jesus, who would have said that they were uh, a part of the church, but has come to a place where they've walked away, where they're no longer seeking to, uh, to be a part of Jesus' bride. They're no longer uh, professing to follow or worship Jesus. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, and part of that is because uh, the salvation, in some sense, is very individual, right? Like, part of the key to understanding and knowing salvation is when you realize not just that Jesus came and died for the whole world, but Jesus came and died for you. He came and died for, for your sin, personally, individually. And when you, when you have that moment of realization, that's one of the things that awakens you to your desperate need for his salvation. Not that Jesus loves the whole world, but Jesus loves me. 
and when you get that, it's transformative. But, but once you get that, the next thing that he wants you to know is like, hey, I've saved you not to be one-on-one with me, but to be in community with the, with the others who I've saved, which is my church. I'm building a family, and now you're a part of this family. And so, um, so, yes, we have this individual relationship, but now you're part of a community. And so when somebody departs from the community, man, that's painful. That hurts. It hurts individuals. It hurts the church. Uh, it's a difficult thing to process and to understand. It brings up this question, okay, so were they saved? Did they lose their salvation? Uh, did it just seem like they were a follower of Jesus, but they really weren't? Like, what's going on there? And so we're going to dig into that. We're going to look at some of those things uh, this morning. And my hope is that it would be a challenge and an encouragement uh, as well. And so let's go ahead and read the passage, and, and we'll dive into it. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. Um, it says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For, and what he's talking about here is, is the, the false prophets. He's saying their teachings, the things that they're trying to lead you to, are like waterless springs. It's like mists driven by a storm. He says, for them, these false prophets, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So I'm trying to keep it light and airy for Father's Day, right? Just kind of wanted to preach a fluffy, feel-good sermon uh, just so you guys could walk out of here feeling, feeling happy, right? I mean, no, this is, this is heavy, um, but it's real. It's real. I know for me personally, um, man, uh, there, there's a, a dear friend of mine who I've seen walk this path. I've seen them profess to know Jesus, and I've seen them turn their back on all of that, and I've seen them shipwreck their life, and uh, man, it's heartbreaking, and it's devastating, and I'm sure a number of you uh, have experienced this same sort of thing, and so this isn't uh, a theoretical. This is real. This is something that we see happen, and we need to understand it so that by God's grace, maybe we can help somebody out of it or help someone avoid it. And so, so these false teachers, let's begin by looking at who is it that they target? Who is it that the false teachers are going after? And we see this in verse 18. It says, uh, it says for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So they're going after the ones who are barely escaping from the people that are living in error. There's, there's people that are living in error, that are living separated from God, and then there's people that are just kind of barely escaping from the pool, that, that sin vortex, the gravity of, of sin that's pulling them in, and, and they're going after the one. That's, that's what they do, right? The wolves always go after the lone sheep, right? They go after the one that's a little bit closer to the edge, the one that, that, that maybe isn't as strong. And, and, and so these are immature Christians, and in my, in my original notes I put, new believers, or I put uh, recent converts. Uh, but as I thought about it and I prayed about it, I realized, like, I, I don't know that that's incredibly accurate because I've, I've seen people come to faith 
and mature very quickly. I've seen people get it, and they just get it, and they understand, and something changes where they are not uh, open uh, to, to temptation or attack from the enemy in that sort of, sort of way. Um, and then I've seen people that have grown up in the church their whole life who, who you would look at and say, man, that person, as long as I've known them, you would look at them and say, yeah, I assume they're mature. They've been going to church for decades. But the reality is, is that they, they just kind of, uh, how many of us know that change is hard, right? Everybody try to change anything, change your diet, change your workout routine, change anything. Change is hard. And so for some people, they grow up in the church, and to leave the church would be harder than to remain in the church. And so they continue to show up, and they continue to go, and, and, and they continue to be there. And outwardly, it all looks like everything's good, but the gospel has only touched the surface of their heart. It hasn't penetrated down into it. And these are some of those that are barely escaping those who are living in error. And, and so one of the ways that you can identify this is a heart that gravitates towards sin. Uh, that my friend that I was talking about, one of the things that, that he said to me on a couple different occasions, I remember, is like, it's like, man, if, uh, if, man, if drugs weren't illegal, I would totally do all of them, right? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, man, that looks really fun. That looks really enjoyable. That looks like something I want to do, but my morality tells me that it's illegal and I shouldn't and can't do it. But if, but if I could, I would, right? It's this mindset that says, hey, what if nobody would see and nobody would know and you would never get caught and there would never be any consequences? Would you do it? And if your heart's like, yeah, man, if I could get away, I'm not, I'm not avoiding it because it's wrong. I'm avoiding it because I'm afraid of the consequences of what happens if I do it. And that's a sign that your heart is, 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 is leaning towards those that are living in sin. The only difference between you and somebody that is, that is just full-on engaging in it is, is that um, your hearts both gravitate toward it. They're just not saying no, right? Um, and so, so there's a danger in that. Here's another thing. If you, if you hear somebody give a testimony and they come up and say, yeah, you know, for, for 35 years, I indulged in everything the world had to offer. I did it all. You know, you name it, I did it. I was there. I experienced it. And then I found Jesus, and now I'm living for him. And you're like, wow. They, like, that's the best of both worlds. They got to do it all, and then they came to Jesus. Like, they, they won the lottery. If, if that's how you feel, it's an indication that, that the things of the world are still pulling on your heart. Because if you talk to that person, and they've truly come to faith in Jesus, they would without a doubt tell you, I, if I could go back, I would never have done any of that stuff. It tasted good in the moment. I celebrated, I reveled in it, but now I see the, the baggage I carry forward. Because, because here's the deal. Jesus gives us forgiveness. It's total. It's complete. Uh, it's, it's removed as far from us as the east is from the west. But in this life, our sin has consequences. So even if you're living in freedom, even if you're living in forgiveness, the choices that you make, they follow you. And you have to deal with those the rest of your life. And, and so people know that, that all these things that claim to bring you joy and fulfillment, they come with a heavy price tag. There's a cost. And it'd be far better to avoid all of those. So, so this false teaching is appealing to those that, that are on the edge, right? That are, that, that are just barely escaping from those who live in error. Now, there, there's a natural course of maturing that, that happens, and I've seen this in my own life, right, where uh, you, how do you know what's right and wrong? Well, uh, you have to come to God's word, right? This is where he tells us, this is where he says, 
This is what sin is. This is what glorifies and honors God. These are things you should do. These are things you shouldn't do. And uh, when you read a lot of them, if you're honest, there's a lot of them you're like, wow, God, I mean, you're all-powerful. I kind of wish you would have flipped those around. <laughs> I, wish, I wish that that would actually be a good thing because I'd really like to do that, but you're telling me I shouldn't do it. So I, uh, I guess I'm just going to have to trust. And so the, the path of maturity looks like this. You see what God calls us to do. You begin to live in obedience to it. And then after a little while, and some of you guys have experienced this, all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I get why God didn't want me to do that. Now, with a few years under my belt of obedience and, and walking on the, the, the true path, I can see where that path would take me. And I want nothing to do with it, even though back here, that looked like a very desirable course of action. But now that I'm past it, now I can look at it in my rearview mirror and I can see what damage that would have done. You guys ever watch that show, Sister Wives on TLC? Anybody ever watch that? It's this guy who's living in polygamy, right? Um, right? An immature mind might say, wow, like multiple wives? That sounds awesome, right? <laughs> if you watch the show, you see the reality is, is it's not awesome. Um, and I'm not a, a regular watcher, but I have watched a few episodes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have a hard enough time being selfless enough uh, to love one wife well, right? Like, I can't imagine, right? It's, it, it's crazy. It's, it's a silly example, but the reality is, is that sin always looks good on the surface. It always, it's always marketed well. It's always presented well. It's shiny. It's like candy. But, but if you eat too much candy, you get a stomachache, right? <laughs> and uh, my kids wanted Rita's water ice for breakfast the other morning. I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. They couldn't understand it, but I've been on the other side because I've done it. <laughs> and I know where it leaves you, so I, I, I understand the effects of sin. And so, so God wants us to walk along that path to maturity. And, and, and little by little, there is less and less in the Bible that I don't experientially agree and know, like, wow, yeah, God is right on that one. And the more that we see that he's right about little ones, we can say, hey, this one I don't understand, but you know what? He was right about all this. I have a feeling he's probably right about this, too even though I haven't got there yet. Uh, and, and when we live in that way with that sort of built trust that he deserves, then we're not tempted by these false teachers. But here's the strategy that they, that they employ. It really talks about three things. They speak in this sort of big, bold, flowery language. They appeal to the lust of the flesh, and they promise freedom, something that they can't deliver. And so let's, let's, let's take a look at some of those things. Uh, this idea of uh, your, your translation, I'm working out of the English Standard Version here. Other translations, this Greek word is particularly difficult to translate. And so in the English Standard Version, it says, speaking loud boasts of folly. It's a Greek word that means of excessive weight or size, and it can be translated as immoderate, boastful, excessive, pompous. The idea is essentially they use big words and they speak with confidence so that everybody assumes that they know what they're talking about. And, uh, and you're like, wow, yeah, he seems really confident about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that, right? And, um, uh, or another way that it reveals itself is, is intentionally ambiguous language, right? Hey, we're just all about love. Well, that could mean a million different things, right? Is there any word that's harder to define than love? I mean... I won't do the whole Hadaway, what is love, baby, don't hurt me thing, right? I'm going to skip that for today. But, but nobody really, you know, I mean, you, understand, you think you understand love, but there's so many facets and layers and dimensions, and there's familial love, and there's tough love, 
and there's, uh, there's merciful, forgiving love, and there's gracious love, and there's, and there's affection. There, there's all these different layers to love, and so uh, nobody's going to argue with love, right? If we put love on a billboard and a slogan, everybody's all about that, but, but we all might mean really different things when we say it. And so at this time, let's get, let's get specific, right? At this time, one of the heresies that they were going against, if you remember, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two different groups that Jesus was always kind of arguing with. And, uh, and they were actually arguing with each other as well because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees did. And in that instance, Jesus said, hey, Pharisees, you got this one right. Sadducees, you guys are way off the mark on this. You missed it. And so as some of these, uh, these Israelites, these Hebrews, became followers of Jesus, they kind of brought in some of the ideas that they had from their understanding of the Jewish faith. And so some of those who had gravitated towards this sort of Sadducee approach to Judaism imported that into Christianity and said, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus, we believe in, uh, in the Christian faith, uh, but we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so essentially there is no judgment there's no accountability when you die. And so the underlying idea is, what difference does morality make? You can really do whatever you want because nobody's going to hold you accountable. When you die, there is no judgment. There's no afterlife. There's nothing. So ultimately, why not eat, drink, and be merry? And you can still call yourself a Christian. And, uh, and, and the early church firmly rejected this. They said, first of all, <laughs> Jesus is resurrected, right? <laughs> he is risen. If you look at the things that he said... Uh, but that's what, what these false teachers, they always conveniently ignore some of the teachings of Jesus and, and amplify others. And so uh, it was an excuse to be able to do whatever you wanted in the flesh and still be able to call yourself a Christian. Now, this exists today, but it just puts on different masks. Uh, one is this idea that God exists for your prosperity. Uh, hey, the whole reason Jesus died on the cross is so that you can have uh, a blessed life, right? Ambiguous language. What does blessed mean, right? I, really, I believe Jesus wants to bless you. I believe he wants your blessing, but, but if their interpretation of blessing is a bigger bank account and, and, and a bigger, nicer car and a bigger home and, and perfect health, and that's the whole reason why Jesus died for you to have those things, that's a distortion. That makes you the ultimate goal. That makes your good the ultimate goal, right? And so, but it's, it's, reason, it's easy to see, like, if somebody stands up and says, hey, I want to tell you some good news. Jesus wants you to have a bunch of stuff. All of us are like, yeah, I would sign up for that <laughs> if it were true, but I've read my Bible, <laughs> and it turns out that that's not exactly why Jesus died uh, for me. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus had nothing in the bank account. Jesus never had a romantic relationship. Uh, Jesus was not, by most measures, considered successful in his earthly ministry. He was criticized. He was ridiculed. Ultimately, he was beaten and he was crucified. He's the example of the life that we're called to live. It's kind of hard to square that with Jesus died so you can have a bigger car. But, but we do this, and, and, it's, and it's desirable, and so people are sucked into it. I mean, retail therapy is a real thing, right? <laughs> I don't feel too good, but if I go buy a, a giant Starbucks cup, I got mine with me here, right? So I tried to make sure that I was feeling good this morning, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, if I get the newest phone, if I, get the, uh, if, I, if I just get that nicer car, if I just get, right, we think that it's going to fulfill us, um, but then we get it and we find out that it, 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 it doesn't. Uh, A.W. Tozer calls it the blessedness of possessing nothing. And I'm not saying here that we're all to take a vow of abject poverty and not to have anything. I think, I think uh, the Bible tells us that God is a good father. 
He knows what we need. He wants to bless us. But he doesn't want our possessions to possess us. We become possessed by our possessions. And so A.W. Tozer calls it the blessedness of possessing nothing. He's like, I can have things. I can be a steward of things. If God chooses to give me something, I'll do my best to, to, to use it for its purpose and use it to bless others and to be generous. And if he chooses to take it away from me, it was never mine to start with. That, that, that mindset of, I don't own anything. <laughs> if God chooses to bring it into my life, that's great. If, if he chooses to take it away, that's his prerogative. Uh, whatever God chooses, I know is best for me. I've talked about this. I talked about this last time I preached. Like, the worst thing that could happen for most of us is for us to win the lottery. That would be a train wreck. And if you watch any of those documentaries that follow lottery winners, that's not good. That follow ex-professional athletes that had all these millions of dollars and the entourage and everything, and, and where are they five years down the road? It's just pouring fuel on our sin. That's not a good thing. My, my friend that, that I've been talking about, what, he, he, he was flirting with, with some, some, some difficult things. He started attending a church that was preaching about prosperity. Um, and then he sold his business for millions of dollars. And suddenly there was no more restriction on all the things that he had always wanted to do. And sadly, it poured fuel on all the, the negative things, the desires of his heart. And it was sad to stand back and watch it happen and to reach out and plead with him not to go down roads that he went down. But, the, but by the grace of God, go any of us, right? If, if, if we're not grounded in this, if we're just going after the next shiny thing, that path is going to lead us into a difficult place. I'm taking too much time on this point. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's other variations, right? One is like, we're the select few. We are the chosen of God. We're the only ones who really get what he's saying. And this leads to all of our isms in society, right? Racism, classism, sexism, extreme nationalism, all these things that say uh, it's us and them. We're the small enclave of good people who really walk with God and get it. And all those people are, are outside of it. They're unworthy of him. Whereas the Christian faith truly understood says, hey, we're all broken and sinners. We're saved by grace. And if I look at somebody who's in a broken state, I'm just looking at where I was prior to meeting Christ. And if God is gracious enough, he may offer me the chance to share that good news with them so that they can come and find the joy and the hope that I've found. There should be no exclusion, exclusivity in the church. Uh, Talk about open and flowery language. One of the I, over the years, I've gotten a number of uh, emails, phone calls that kind of all follow into the same pattern. Where ultimately, what the person is asking, they'll say, "Hey, I looked at your website. I'm thinking about coming to your church. I'm checking it out. I just, I just wanted to know: Are you open and affirming? Are you an open and affirming church?" And I understand what they're asking, but there's not an easy answer to that question, right? Because if you say, uh, "What's the alternative?" Uh, I'm a we are a closed and denying church, right? <laughs> Let's, let's offer these two paradigms, right? Either you're open and affirming or you're closed and denying. Well, I don't think Jesus was either of those. I think when you think about the, the, the parties the tax collectors used to throw, that's open and affirming. That says, hey, come as you are. Society hates all of us, uh, but I don't care what you do. Come, drink my wine, live however you want to live. Like, we'll celebrate it together. Everything's cool. There's no judgment. This is the judgment-free zone. This is the planet fitness party over here, right? Like... <laughs> You will not be judged. 
Meanwhile, the Pharisees were closed in denying. They're saying like, hey, that whole group over there, I'm not going to eat with you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not even going to touch you because you're going to make me unclean. I don't want anything to do with you. Um, As far as I'm done, I've judged you and you are already outside of the kingdom. But what did Jesus do? Jesus went to the parties. He took the invite. He ate with those that everyone else rejected. And he came in and he looked at them and he loved them. And then he said, hey, I want to share truth with you. And I want to encourage you to go and sin no more. He loved them enough to get to know them and then speak truth into the life. And, and man, so that's a hard email to write to explain that to somebody, right? <laughs> but that's what we're called to be is the church. Our doors are wide open for everybody. We want everybody in the room. We want everybody here with us on Sunday morning. Hearing, hearing, opening the Bible, studying it, and applying it to our lives. The question really is like, hey, can I come to your church and not change? Can you affirm that I'm good right where I'm at? And my answer to everybody on that question is no. Everybody has to walk through the door. Everybody's got to change. <laughs> We've got to be continually shaped and reformed into the image that, that Jesus is showing us in here. That's the message for me. I, each week I can't come in here unchanged. You know, I, I, I think, uh, like, like many people, you know, I, I wrestle with self-centeredness. And I feel like in the past couple months, I, I feel like God has exposed to me, like, man, there's a whole other layer of self-centeredness that, that you haven't dealt with. And so my, my choice is, like, hey, are, am I going to harden my heart and reject that? Or am I going to do the hard and painful work of saying, all right, Lord, it's, it's your way, not my way. And, and let him break me down a little bit and feel uncomfortable and, and feel uh, dependent on him. Because that's really what he wants. That's what he wants from all of us. So do we, love, do we love people enough to accept them no matter who they are, where they are, what they look like, what they're doing, to invite them in and to share life-changing hope and truth with them? That, that's, that's who we've got to be as a church. That, uh, that doesn't sell well <laughs> with the false teachers, right? That's not, a, that, that, that's not the sort of message that, that, that has a quick payoff. Because like I was saying with the incarnation thing, it has a cost. It's messy, it's complicated. It's risky. But, but that's, man, that's what Jesus calls us to. So that's what we've got to do. Ultimately, what it says is that, that whatever we, um, whatever we uh, allow into our life, our, the sin that we follow, it enslaves us. Sin never leads that way, right? Here's what it says. It says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I knew a... Uh, uh, people that are really into working out that would set their alarm and wake up at 3 a.m. to eat some protein so that their muscles wouldn't atrophy overnight. That feels a little bit like enslavement, right? <laughs> that's, nobody wants to do that, but if you want to bulk up, that's what you got to do, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and you can follow. There's, there's, there's much more uh, easy examples, and we, and we all fall into this. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm enslaved to caffeine, and so every once in a while I have to just walk away from it just so that I know that, <laughs> that, that it doesn't have ultimate power over me. There, there, there's, there's, there's much more damaging things that can enslave us. But here's the reality. Uh, man, there's no such thing as just sort of living in ultimate, perfect freedom. Any life that you choose has limits on it. But only by accepting the limits that God puts on your life can you experience the sort of uh, hope and freedom and blessings that will last, that, that, that will give lasting results, that will have eternal benefit. 
And so you can either accept and embrace the limitations that God wants to put on your life. Hey, that's sin. Don't do that. It's going to hurt you. Stay over here. Or you, or you can choose some other way of, of choosing your limits. But nobody lives limitless, right? To, to live with no limits is just to go in every direction at the same time, which is, which is purposeless, which is meaningless, which means you're making no progress in any direction, right? Tim Keller talks about this well in marriage. He says, he says, some people think that marriage is limiting, right? Because now instead of being able to love anyone that I want, I have to love one person for the rest of my life. But the reality is that when you focus that light, like a light being focused into a laser beam, love is powerful when it's limited. And so we, we have to embrace what God has done. The, the idea that we can, um, we can live in just total freedom, it's, it's, a, it's one of these things that the false teachers try and sell, but it just doesn't, doesn't pan out. Sin equals slavery. Has something overcome you? Bitterness, unforgiveness, comparison, addiction, self. All these things can control us, and, and the results they give are not going to be <laughs> life-giving, joyful, hope-giving. And so he says the ultimate result of this is it's they're, they're worse off than if they had never heard the gospel. And so you might read through this and you might say, wow, that sounds like, so did they lose their salvation? They, they knew who Jesus was, but then they walked away? Here's what I would say. Um, in a grand sense, God lives outside of time and space, right? So he knows our, all of our stories from beginning to end. He knows those that will end in obedience to him and those that will end in rejection of him. Um, what we're seeing here is a picture of the, the parable that Jesus told about the seeds that were cast, right? And the seed is the gospel. The seeds sprung up. All the seeds, as they were springing up, they all looked the same, but then some were on rocky soil, so they didn't make it, and some got eaten by birds, and they never even took root. And then others started to grow, and they were, they were really taken off, but then the sun came and scorched them, and he said that's like the cares of the world coming in. And so at the earliest stages, you don't really know, but, but over time, the plants that bore fruit were those that, that had genuinely had the, the, the gospel take root in their soil. And, and this is just another way of saying that. He's saying, hey, like, uh, if somebody looks like they're a Christian and acts like they're a Christian and says they're a Christian, but then ultimately turns away from the faith, the reality is, is the gospel never took root in their heart. They never really understood what Jesus is all about and who he is and what he's done, because if they did, they never would have turned away. But even in having a glimpse of it, their joy has been stolen. I don't know if you guys know this, but if you know somebody who was walking in the faith and now has turned away and is living in sin, there's no more joy in sin. They might be having an affair. They might be, they might be doing all kinds of things that they shouldn't be doing, indulging in, in, in sinful things. In my experience, there's never any joy. When I talk to those people, they know what's right. They're choosing what's wrong. And so even though they're hard-hearted in rebellion, it doesn't taste good in their mouth. And so they're continually conflicted. They're continually uh, just, just torn up inside. And there's only one path to peace, and that's returning to Jesus. And the prayer is that sometimes in God's mercy, he'll allow them to get to that place like the, the prodigal son in the pigsty so that they will finally realize the depth of their depravity and they will return and come back to him. I'll conclude by looking at this. Um, 
he talks about in the beginning about the water, right? He talks about waterless springs and mist driven by storms. There's really kind of three kinds of water. There's, there's water, which is God's creation. It's good. We're made up of it. We can't go more than a few days without it. Uh, but here's the problem. I drank some water this morning, but right now I'm feeling thirsty again. Water is good. It's valuable. It's necessary, but it, it's not satisfying in a lasting way. We have to continually go back and get more of it. The, the, the waterless springs and the, and the storms driven by mist, these are the, the false teacher's promise of, hey, I'm going to give you something to drink that will last. But when you get there, it's like traveling through a desert and, and hearing there's an oasis ahead, and when you get there, you realize it's just a mirage and it's just sand. And while you thought your, your thirst was going to be satisfied, now you're just left in despair and hopelessness and discouragement. But there's one other type of water. It's, it's living water. So what Jesus described when he met the, the Samaritan woman at the well, the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies of each other. And Jesus looked at her and he said, hey, can you get me a drink? And she said, I'm amazed that you would ask me because our people are enemies. And he's like, well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink of living water and you would never need to come to this well again. You would never thirst again. And she's like, sir, where is this water? <laughs> It's a, it's a reference to what, what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2. He says, uh, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, Jesus fulfills what the false prophets uh, promise. They promise and can't deliver. Jesus fulfills delivers, and is the fulfillment of everything that's promised. Jesus is the true prophet that points us to the living water, springs of living water that will reside within us, that will fill us, that will satisfy us, that will overflow and satisfy the thirst of others as well. That's the life that he wants us to live. And so you need to think about, what is the picture of my life? Do I have the river of the living waters welling up in me because of Jesus? And, and am I a source of refreshment and nourishment to others? Or have I dug out my own broken cistern? A cistern was an area to hold water that has holes in the bottom of it. If you're building your life around sin, around uh, self, around any of these other things, it won't hold water. And so the question for us today is, which one is a picture of our life? What do you want to be a picture of your life? Because the good news is, 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 is that Jesus offers the living water for free. He, he says you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to wait until you go through a class. You don't have to wait for the 21-day journey through the book of John. <laughs> Today, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And he'll pour that living water into you and then you can live out of overflow instead of living out of thirst.